All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. So there's some words by um, T.E. Lawrence, he of Lawrence of Arabia fame, uh, from his book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And I chose those words because um, they're, they're used in uh, the prefix of uh, the preface of a book uh, called Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. And, uh, well, I'm going to talk about that book. Uh, in this talk. But before I do that, um, well, I just wanted to reiterate something that Vadania was saying yesterday, that the archetype of the hero, uh, or the heroic quest, is, uh, in a way, just one way of talking about the spiritual life. Uh, and I, I, I've come to realize that every time uh, I or anybody tries to say anything about the Dharma or the spiritual life, it's partial. Uh, it's almost like you have to keep correcting yourself. You say one thing, then you have to say, oh, well, I don't quite mean that, uh, or at least not in all circumstances, or actually there's this opposite view as well that's equally valid. Uh, so it's always, it's always partial. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the heroic quest is a very, very good and apt way of talking about the spiritual life. So I'm going to use the story of... Um, yeah, Joe Simpson, who um, is a man from Sheffield, wrote this book, Touching the Void. You might have read the book, you might have seen the film. It was recently made into a film. Uh, and he's, uh, well, he's a mountaineer, a writer, and now works also as a uh, motivational speaker to uh, businessmen, um, I believe. And his story, uh, together with his... Um, friend and uh, colleague and fellow mountaineer, uh, a man called Simon Yates, their story is, um, well, it's a story of heroism. It's a story of a heroic quest. Not necessarily a spiritual quest, uh, but I think it's a very good um, metaphor or analogy for the spiritual quest. So if you'll sort of indulge me, I want to use it as an analogy. Uh, don't take it literally. Um, I'm not saying we all have to climb mountains. I wouldn't be here if that was what the spiritual life was about, frankly. Um, but I think it's a fantastic, fantastic illustration. Uh, and if you give me poetic license, I'd like to try and draw out some of the, uh, the analogies uh, of the spiritual truths. Uh, so yeah, Joe Simpson and his friend Simon Yates, in their 20s, I think they were probably about 25, 26, um, young, adventurous, uh, uh, confident men went to Peru uh, and decided to scale uh, this particular mountain, which I'm not sure how it's pronounced. I think it's something like the Suila Grande. Uh, they decided to scale this mountain that uh, had never been scaled by this particular face. Uh, the west face of the mountain had never been conquered. And this particular mountain was, well, it's 21,000 feet high, and the west face was... Uh, seemed to be uh, particularly treacherous and uh, probably impossible to climb. <coughs> so they prepare for this ascent. They, um, they realize that they need to prepare, a bit like Swan Sang was preparing. Perhaps they do it a bit more consciously and less uh, sort of mysteriously than seemed to happen in Swan Sang's life. But they prepare for this ascent. They realize that it's full of danger. They're, they're good friends. They trust each other. Uh, and they trust each other's abilities. Uh, and they do lots of, um, from, from their base camp, they establish a base camp. There's a third man called Richard, I can't remember his second name. He stays at base camp looking after their possessions. Uh, and they, well, they do little sort of um, forays into, you know, little uh, short... Uh, 
I don't know what you do, run up a mountain, you know, walk up a mountain, to uh, become acclimatised and, and, and test their, their um, equipment, etc. Yeah, so in some ways, um, well, I was just thinking, well, climbing a mountain is a good analogy, isn't it, for the spiritual life? Uh, it's used, um, uh, you know, it's often used as um, uh, an analogy for the spiritual life. You see this goal, you see this mountain in the distance, you're attracted by the beauty of it, uh, and then you move towards it, and you have to start climbing. Um, in other ways, it's a very simplistic and simple uh, metaphor uh, that probably doesn't do justice to anybody's life, uh, and certainly doesn't do justice to the sort of complexities of the spiritual life. But what I think it does do is illustrate, um, as an image, it illustrates um, idealism, I think. Uh, climbing a mountain illustrates something to do with having an ideal, uh, a sort of impossibly lofty ideal, an ideal that seems sort of crazy and, uh, uh, well, anti-Confucianism. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that you would normally, out of common sense, choose to do. Uh, and I think that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Partly because, um, uh, well, we don't live in a very idealistic age, do we? We don't live in a very idealistic age. This is why I think it's important to sort of tr try and re-emphasize uh, ideals. Because even, even us Buddhists or... Uh, wayfarers in the spiritual life, uh, I think we're influenced by the fact that we don't live in a very idealistic age. In fact, I think we live in a rather cynical age. Uh, but it's so much around us that I think it's even hard to see the cynicism for what it is. And it's interesting when, uh, well, my experience of going to India, um, Vadanya was talking about uh, uh, India, and uh, yeah, I was ordained in 99 in India. And one of the most moving things about being ordained in India was um, the uncynical nature of the response that you have there. Um, uh, it's just fantastic. It's tremendously powerful. Uh, at my public ordination, um, well, it wasn't. It was. It was all sort of advertised in a bit of a hurry because I think the dates had been chosen at the last minute, etc. And so, and this retreat centre was some way outside of Nagpur. I'm digressing, but. Uh, indulge me. Uh, and my public ordination, so they hurriedly put up some notices and posters. And between five and 10,000 people came yeah, from <coughs> surrounding cities and neighborhoods and villages. And they were all Buddhist. And they were all celebrating. I mean, they didn't know me or the other men, probably, who were being ordained. There were six of us. Uh, but they were celebrating. Well, partly they were having a picnic, but they were celebrating <laughs> um, the spiritual ideal. Uh, and, and you don't you don't get that in, in the West, not, not in my experience. Uh, but also, it's not just a cynical age that we live in, um, uh, is it, really? Um, it's also an age that's uh, almost um, defined by uh, our desire, our need for comfort, uh, for security. It's, it's an age of comfort and complacency, in a way, isn't it? And consumerism, of course. The three Cs are probably... Comfort, complacency, and consumerism—that uh, that seems to be um, again an endemic thing. And certainly, I recognise that in myself. Uh, I must admit, I'm not as cynical as um, perhaps um, you know, perhaps some people uh, around us are. But I am um, really, really drawn to wanting comfort, and I do get very, very complacent. And uh, well, consumerism doesn't pass me by either. And uh, yeah, I think that's. That's um, partly the age we live in, partly it's my, my um, temperament. So I think there's, there's possibly deeper reasons, though, for perhaps, perhaps when we've encountered um, something like uh, Buddhism, the Dharma, perhaps we've sort of overcome at least the hump of uh, our sort of cynical age, or at least to some extent, uh, but I think there are deeper reasons that stop us being idealistic, and I think we kind of encounter them again and again in our spiritual lives. So I'm just thinking about, um, well, we can have fears of, uh, fears of failing, so we don't hold on to an ideal because we might never achieve it. Or we have fears of rejection, because being idealistic means opening up uh, to, to other people, to uh, being receptive, 
to something that might be higher than ourselves. And, and perhaps we have fears to do with um, yeah, being vulnerable, being rejected. Perhaps fears of admitting that we don't have all the answers. Uh, to be a successful man today, perhaps we feel that we need all the answers, we need to have life sorted. And uh, while well, spiritual life isn't about having life sorted, uh, quite the opposite. So yeah, Joe Simpson, to go back to Joe Simpson and Simon Yates, I think they were naive. Yeah, they were naive heroes. Uh, they were young. How could they not be naive? Uh, they didn't have a lot of life experience. They didn't have a lot of mountaineering experience. Uh, uh, but they were idealistic in, in a... Um, well, in a, in a very inspiring way. And uh, cynicism's kind of no answer to that naivety. Let me read you something about um, ideals from another man. To inquire after the meaning or object of one's own existence or of creation generally has always seemed to me absurd from an objective point of view. And yet everybody has certain ideals which determine the direction of his endeavours and his judgments. In this sense, I have never looked upon ease and happiness as ends in themselves. Such an ethical basis I call more proper for a herd of swine. The ideals which have lighted me on my way and time after time have given me new courage to face life cheerfully, have been truth, goodness, and beauty. Without the sense of fellowship with men of like mind, of preoccupation with the objective, the eternally unattainable in the field of art and scientific research, life would have seemed to me empty. The ordinary objects of human endeavour, property, outward success, luxury, have always seemed to me contemptible. So they're very, very strong words from, um, from another man. They're words by um, Albert Einstein. Uh, and, uh, well, Einstein's a sort of, um, yeah, hero of mine. I've been um, reading about him over the last wee while. And uh, he has some very, very sound things to say about life, uh, about the spiritual life, actually. Uh, in some ways, he's a mature hero uh, uh, in the way that perhaps Joe Simpson, as he was uh, setting out for his climb, certainly wasn't at the start. So I'm going to keep coming back to Einstein as a sort of thread running through this talk. But I just want to uh, touch on, well, my own experience of idealism. Um, as, a, as, a, as a teenager, um, I used to read about Buddhism, uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, mostly, and uh, be very inspired, be genuinely inspired. But mixed in with that, there was quite a lot of, um, well, not just naivety, but egotism. Uh, I fancied myself as a Zen master, uh, wandering around hitting people with sticks every time they moved and uh, pronouncing on the nature of reality at every opportunity. Uh, I sort of thought, ah, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's kind of what I'll be when I grow up. And I can remember um, when I was about 19 or so, I, I did join a Zen group for a while. And uh, it was run by this, um, well, very impressive man called uh, uh, Clive Sherlock. He was a, he was a doctor. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, he ran this Zen group. And I used to go along of an evening and uh, just wait, just be convinced that he was going to recognize me as the next, you know, the next Zen master in his lineage. And uh, I was just kind of waiting for that. And of course, he never did. And uh, I can remember one occasion where he, um, where, well, I used to park my bike outside his his, his, his um, front gate, and my bike padlock got locked or something. And so I had to go back and knock on the door and ask for some hot water so that I could put it onto the padlock to thaw it, to put the key in, etc., etc. And um, he gave me some hot water and then patted me on the back. And for days afterwards, I thought that was a sign. He patted me on the back. <laughs> 
that was the sign that I'd been waiting for. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little aside. Uh, another little aside, um, just about idealism, that <clears throat> I guess we do... I do think that we have to um, look at how we hold ideals. Uh, and there's been much, much talk of this in our order and movement over the last few years, couple of years particularly. Uh, and, and uh, well, it's true that you can hold noble ideals in a sort of unhelpful way. We can hold them so tightly and so sort of harshly uh, that they stop being helpful, either to ourselves or to other people. And I think that's something to watch out for. If we find ourselves in a situation, for example, where we're just getting angry or resentful uh, with ourselves or with other people in the name of idealism, then something's going wrong, something's not quite right. If we find ourselves sitting, getting angry with ourselves because we can't feel enough meta in the metabhavna, then something's gone wrong, hasn't it? Something's very um, amiss. So that's just a sort of warning, caveat, uh, about, well, holding ideals. It's, um, it's not an easy thing to do. Anyway, to, so to, to resume the story of Joe Simpson and Simon, uh, they manage to, well, they navigate their way through uh, incredible kind of dangers. Um, uh, and remember, it's uncharted terrain. Uh, they don't really know what the... The, the layout of this west face is. They find themselves on uh, crevasses, on uh, powder snow that crumbles as soon as you touch it. Uh, huge walls of this powder snow that um, you know are completely unnavigable. Uh, anyway, they manage to sort of find their way using all their skills and resources uh, up to the top of um, the summit. They scale the west face. Uh, huge, huge sort of achievement. Uh, and then, of course, they start to descend. They start to, to come down again. And uh, the descent proves not as straightforward as they might have thought. Uh, uh, they, they're trying to come down by a slightly different route. Um, you know, a, a look that looked like an easier route. And actually, it proves pretty precarious and, and, and dangerous. And uh, quite early on in the descent, there's a disaster that happens. Uh, and Joe Simpson falls. And uh, he, he, he breaks his leg in a really quite a nasty way. Uh, the knee breaks. It, it breaks at the knee. And he talks about the bone sort of going that way. It sort of slides up his leg so that his knee is... Um, yeah, it's just completely contorted, and the bones crunched on bone and slid up his, his leg. So they're nearly at the top of this mountain. They haven't descended very far, and he's broken his leg. Uh, and immediately he, he realizes that actually this is it. This is it. He can't get down. He's not going to make it. All his mountaineering knowledge uh, tells him that he's, he's dead now. This is it. Uh, and Simon Yates catches up with him and says, what's wrong? And they look at each other, and uh, Joe just says, I've broken my leg. He's in agony, of course, but he manages to hold it together and say, I've, I've broken my leg. And there's a look. They don't say anything. They just look at each other for a little too long, and they both know what it means. Uh, and neither want to actually say, well, this is it. Uh, they're waiting for the moment where, well, Joe's waiting for the moment where Simon will say, okay, mate, I'm going to go down. I can't help you. I'm going to have to descend on my own and, and leave you here. And there's no way that, you know, a rescue party could have got to them in time, etc., etc. They're waiting for that. He's, he's sort of, Joe's waiting uh, for that moment. Um, but it doesn't happen. That moment doesn't happen. Uh, instead, um, well, what Joe starts doing initially is hopping. So he hops uh, on the route that they, they were trying to descend. Uh, and, of course, he falls at every hop. Yeah? And when he falls, he can't but help fall on his broken leg, which is agony. And he gets up and hops again and falls again until he works out a way of hopping 
that um, enables him to stay upright long enough using axes as sort of um, sticks, you know, walking sticks, etc. And then they get to this point, uh, and Simon's sort of waiting for him. They get to this point which is more of a sheer kind of drop or more of a descent, but there's no way that you can hop down. <coughs> um, and uh, what they do, what Simon says, is that they're going to, They've got rope. Uh, he's gonna, they're going to tie... Well, he ties himself to Joe, digs himself a little sort of seat in the mountain snow, and lowers, winches Joe down, uh, you know, down, down 300 foot, which is what the extent of their rope is. So he, he sort of winches Joe down. And they decide that they're going to do this. They're going to lower... Uh, themselves down the mountain and then Simon would follow climbing down as it were and then winch him down another 300 foot uh, and of course you know Simon's risking his life in this because he's literally um, well there's no there's no nothing holding him he's literally carrying Joe's weight the, the weight of his body as he's um, winching him down sort of holding on to snow uh, digging himself a seat and holding on uh, to, to snow. And, and there's 3,000 feet to go, yeah? And they can do 300 foot at a time, because that's what their rope allows. And, uh, and it's getting dark, yeah? Or it's getting towards dark. They've got a few hours to dark. And so Simon's doing this as fast as he can. Meanwhile, Joe is in agony. Every um, sort of uh, lowering... He, he's banging his leg against the mountainside, yeah? And he's in agony, screaming out, and Simon's just doing as fast as he can. And they do this. They do this um, nine times. They do this, lowering nine times. And each time, then stopping to dig a snow seat. Uh, their fingers are becoming frostbitten, so Simon's having trouble holding on to, to the rope, let alone uh, taking any, any kind of weight. So yeah, I just want to pause there in the story. Uh, I find this... <coughs> I find this... Um, well, it's incredible, isn't it? All common sense um, would say that, you know, he's, he's dead. Uh, and, and neither of them give in to common sense. Uh, and it's very moving the way that, well, Simon is, is willing to risk his life, literally tie his life to the life of his friend. And it's done in a very unsentimental way. They're both, um, I don't know if you've seen the film, but you get a sense in the film of them being both very unsentimental, practical men, not given to displays of very much emotion or talking about their emotions. Um, you know, they're from Sheffield. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, cheap joke. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that this lowering, this tying themselves together and lowering, is, um, is the first stage in their idealism being matured. Uh, no longer is it such a laugh to climb this mountain, and no longer is it such a glorious uh, adventure. Uh, now, actually, they're up against something far more uh, dangerous and real. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's an image for that. It's also... Uh, well, I find it a very powerful image for our interdependence. Uh, for the first time, they're realising that actually they have to rely on each other, or at least Joe has to rely on Simon. He can't do it alone. It isn't uh, a single endeavour, uh, which is, you know, very, very um, true, isn't it, of, of the spiritual life and probably of any uh, thing that we want to do in our lives. But the other thing that it reminds me of is... Um, well, just not quitting at the first hurdle. How tempting it would be to have just given up then and say, okay, well, that's it. You know. uh, and, well, heroes don't do that, do they? Heroes don't do that in their stories. And uh, they stay with it uh, against all the odds. They find creative solutions against all the odds. And they're intelligent in how they do that. So it's not just um, uh, a bludgeoning on 
um, although, you know, it does come to that later on. Uh, but it's an intelligent way of, of working. I was just thinking in, in terms of my own life how um, actually tempting it is to quit when the going gets tough. I, I, uh, when I, um, I left my job, uh, well, a few years back, about seven years back, and uh, joined, well, worked in the centre team of the London Buddhist Centre, raising money at the time for uh, a retreat centre, Vajrasana Retreat Centre. And Vajrasana Retreat Centre was just an ideal that, you know, we in the Sangha at the LBC talked about. Actually, Ratnagosha had held it up as an ideal. It was his dream. It was his vision. He'd decided that we needed a new retreat centre that was going to be beautiful. It was going to be capable of holding 100 people. It was going to be instrumental in spreading the Dharma in London. It was going to be... Um, well, it was going to be tremendous, and I was going to raise money for it. I had no experience of fundraising, and I don't really have that sort of um, talent, actually. Uh, and, uh, but I went in it full of gung-ho kind of glory, or at least as much as I could muster. And, uh, uh, well, it didn't, didn't work out as we hoped. Uh, all the funding that we applied for uh, didn't come through. Uh, I knew a few rich, influential people, and they didn't feel very inspired to give. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, the Sangha was inspired, but nobody was able to give very much. We were trying to raise half a million pounds. And uh, after the first year, we were struggling to reach 100,000, and we'd given ourselves two years to do it in. And, uh, well, I just, I, I just decided we weren't going to do it. Yeah, I just thought, we might as well give up now. Let's cut our losses. Let's not embarrass ourselves further. I could go back and get a job. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, well, Ratnagosha didn't, didn't sort of give up. And I'm just very, very grateful for him for not giving up. But not only did he not give up, he just kept on coming up with creative, inspired sort of solutions, intelligent solutions that kept reframing the project, kept reframing what we were doing uh, and carrying on. And actually, well, yeah, it was just over two years. We did have a retreat centre uh, that did cost us uh, well, just under half a million pounds, probably half a million pounds by the time we got it up and going. Uh, and it's a very beautiful place now. Not quite for 100 people, uh, but nevertheless it's been um, very, very important in the life of many, many people around the LBC and further afield. Just a little example that came to mind from my own life of somebody not giving up. But I want to read a little bit more about Einstein, from Einstein. He talks about this interdependence, um, this recognition that his life is uh, inextricably dependent on the lives of others, uh, in a very, very uh, eloquent and, and lovely way. What an extraordinary situation is that of us mortals. Each of us is here for a brief sojourn. For what purpose he knows not what though he sometimes thinks he feels it. But from the point of view of daily life, without going any deeper, we exist for our fellow men. In the first place, for those on whose smiles and welfare all our happiness depends. And next, for all those unknown to us personally, whose destinies we are bound up by the tie of sympathy. A hundred times every day, I remind myself that my inner and outer life depend on the labours of other men, living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give in the same measure as I have received and am still receiving. Very lovely, uh, very lovely, um, well, humble um, sentiment from, uh, after all, somebody who was a, a you know outstanding um, figure. Okay, so there are nine of these lowerings. Actually, they haven't reached the bottom of this thing yet. Yeah? Uh, so they start, but they know that it's roughly three thousand feet. So the tenth lowering might be the last lowering. They're hoping, yeah. Uh, but it's getting dark now, and actually, common sense would have said stop. In fact, good sense would have said stop. Uh, dig yourself a snow hole and bed down for the night. Because it's not only dark, it's snowing. They can't see very far. They can't hear each other uh, more than a few feet. So, you know, as soon as um, the lowering starts, they've lost sight of each other and they've lost hearing 
you know, sound of each other. But they think, oh yeah, one more lowering, because it might be the last one, 3,000 feet, 10 lowerings. Um, and so, you know, on they go, and they're rushing now. The frostbite, etc., is getting to them. Um, uh, Joe talks about Simon's hands being black, or two of his fingers being black. Uh, so they're rushing, and, uh, well, another disaster happens. Uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, there's a sheer drop, um, uh, a cliff, actually. It's overhanging, so it's not even sheer. It's going the sort of other way. And uh, Joe is just dropped over this drop uh, and falls uh, completely you know, into, into space. Uh, and he's left hanging there by this rope, too far away from the sides of the cliff to, to try and crawl back. Uh, too far away. Well, he's gone over a drop that Simon can't see and can't, you know, there's no way of communicating. Uh, so he's just left hanging there. And if Simon were to follow him, he'd, they'd both fall. They'd both die. So it's a sheer drop into, as far as you can see, unending space. He can't see yeah, where, where it's going. So, so he's just left hanging. And of course, Simon doesn't know what's happened. He's going up, standing up there thinking, why have I suddenly felt... You know, he realises Joe must have fallen uh, because he's now got the full body weight that he's carrying uh, at the end of this rope, uh, but doesn't know why there's no movement, why there's no no tugging of the rope to say, you know, come down, etc., etc. There's no, he's nothing, he's stuck. And of course it's getting harder and harder to hold on. Uh, he's being dragged, pulled, sliding from this uh, snow seat that he's sitting in. Okay, so I'll stop there for a bit. <laughs> so, so what came to mind was... Uh, well, this image of hanging in space, hanging for dear life at the end of a rope uh, in what might as well be infinite space all around you. Uh, and maybe that's an apt image for what can happen uh, in the spiritual life. Actually, it's probably an apt image for what can happen in life generally. Uh, probably we're all going to encounter a time when it feels like we're hanging at the end of a rope off a cliff with nothing, uh, no way to move, uh, nowhere to go. Uh, perhaps it's, it's sort of more acute when you're trying to live the spiritual life because you're committed to developing awareness, to facing your mind uh, and not fudging issues, not hiding in, um, well, not, not, not hiding from reality. Yeah? So perhaps it's, 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 it's kind of worse. And the other thing that came to mind is, uh, well, things go wrong. Things go wrong. I, I, I know that I still have this naive notion that, well, I'm trying to practice the Dharma, so things won't go wrong. Yeah, things will be fine. Life will work out because uh, I'm trying to be uh, a good Buddhist. Uh, you know, I'm doing the Metabhavna. Surely that should be enough. Things won't go wrong. But actually, life promises us dukkha. The Dharma says that, doesn't it? Life promises us dukkha. Sansara will go wrong, and we're still in sansara. So that got me thinking, that reflection got me thinking about Amoga City. Because one of the things about Amoga City is that he's said to promise you unobstructed success. Yeah? Amoga City is said to promise you unobstructed success. So you hold on to Amoga City as your archetype, as your ideal, as your vision of the embodiment of the Dharma. And there should be unobstructed success. So what does that mean? What's this contradiction um, between the Dharma promising you dukkha and, and this, this figure of Amoga City? And what, what the conclusion I've come to tentatively is that it sort of depends on what you mean by success. Uh, and that sort of depends on what you mean by your goal. And if our goal is enlightenment for the sake of all beings, then actually everything that happens to us can be used to further that goal. Yeah? 
we can we can use whatever difficulties arise uh, creatively, and and the Dharma sort of points to that, doesn't it? Because on the arising of dukkha, we can either go round and round this wheel of life, or we can respond creatively with shraddha, and and move up uh, the spiral path. So perhaps it depends on how we respond. Uh, maybe there is unobstructed success if our goal is really uh, enlightenment, awareness, kindness, growth. Maybe there is unobstructed success. Maybe everything that happens can be turned into an opportunity. It can sound like a glib thing to say. It's easier said, isn't it? It's easier said. But maybe that's the symbolism of um, Amoda City's unobstructed success. Okay, so Simon is uh, wondering what to do. Uh, it's dark, there's a snowstorm. He's uh, not sure that he can hang on much longer. And if he falls, uh, well, he'll die. And uh, Joe will die as well. Joe's at the bottom of this rope waiting for Simon to fall. Yeah? He knows that sooner or later Simon won't be able to hang on and they're both going to go tumbling down into this void. And then Simon remembers he's got a knife in his uh, pack and uh, he decides to cut the rope and uh, this has been the crucial point of the story in a way this is the crucial the pivotal point of the story in the book Simon says that actually it was uh, instinctive he didn't have to deliberate he realized that he had a knife it was obvious it was obvious what he needed to do, which was to cut the rope. And it was also obvious to him that that meant that Joe died, that he let his friend drop and, uh, and die. And uh, perhaps it's a bit like Vidanya's Jade Gate, or Swan Sang's Jade Gate. This is the point of no return, in a way. This is the decisive moment. Um, and it's interesting, I find it interesting that this rope... That had, be, that had been, in a way, a symbol for their security, interdependence, their friendship, has now become a tie that threatens to kill the both of them. And what hap has to happen is that it needs to be cut. It needs to be cut so that at least uh, Simon can live, one of them can live. And so he cuts the rope. <coughs> In the book it said that he just has to touch the rope with the knife and it's so taut and cold, it just snaps. Yeah, there's no effort almost needed. You just touch the rope with this knife and it snaps. So I had a few reflections on that. Um, well, the first one that came to mind is just our need that for, for decisiveness. Sometimes we need to just act, don't we? Sometimes you can hang on not acting until it's too late. Uh, it becomes too late uh, to then do anything creative. So sometimes, even though uh, the, the decision doesn't seem easy or even, um, you, know, you don't know if it's the right one, sometimes we have to act. The key thing, though, is um, that Simon takes responsibility for his action. Throughout the rest of the book, you see that he takes responsibility for cutting this rope. He knows that it's an action that will, he'll be criticised for in this mountaineering community. He knows that people will say, you lived, so you, know, you, you saved your own life, but, but killed your friend. And, and you know, this, this solidarity, which is so essential in the mountaineering community, you broke that. You transgressed some sort of uh, unwritten rule in, in doing so. He knows this. But he takes responsibility. He decides that this is the sensible thing to do. And so all I'm saying is that perhaps at times, at crucial times in our lives, where we do have to make decisions that we don't know are going to be the right ones, perhaps all that we can do is take them uh, and try and take responsibility for them, for the consequences of them, uh, even though we can't foresee them. Um, uh, if we find ourselves getting into blame, blaming ourselves, blaming other people, blaming the situation, then probably we're not taking sufficient responsibility.
I think there's something critical about the spiritual life in, in that. Because we want it all to be worked out for us, don't we? We want somebody else sometimes to make that difficult decision for us so that we can blame them later when it goes wrong. Yeah? And Simon does make it back to base camp. He does make it back. Um, he's racked with guilt. Uh, at times, uh, he doesn't know what to do uh, with himself. He's racked with guilt. Uh, he does actually look for Joe, but can't see him. Um, so as on his descent, he looks for Joe, can't see him, decides he's dead, and makes it back to base camp. He, on the way back, he considers telling, well, he considers lying to Richard, remember, who's back at base camp. He considers lying and saying, look, Joe fell, fell into a crevasse, and that's all that happened. Yeah? Because if he did that, then he wouldn't have to face all this criticism, all this... Um, awful uh, publicity. He keeps thinking of Joe's mother. What's he going to say to Joe's mother? Uh, I cut the rope. You know, is he, is he going to have the guts to say that uh, to her? So he considers lying and then decides to tell the truth. He decides that actually he has no choice but to tell the truth. I'm going to have a wee aside again. Um, I'm going to go back to me, me leaving my job. The reason I, I want to go back to that is... Um, uh, well, you'll, you'll, you'll see the reason why I want to go back to that. When I left the job, it felt for me a, a, a critical decision in my life. It felt like a point of no return. I'd been working in this secure job in IT for a large, large retailer, um, earning uh, a very decent wage for 10 years. Uh, and I remember this... this well, I, I decided to leave over a couple of year period, and I, I, I was trying to take responsibility for my decision not you know, re realising what I was doing, as it were. Um, but I remember this, this moment where I had to go and tell one of my bosses. He wasn't my direct line manager, but he was one of my bosses. I was going to have to go and tell him that I'd resigned. Um, his, his, his name was Steve. And uh, I was frightened of Steve. Uh, Steve was, um, uh, well, a corporate bully, actually. Uh, very, very intelligent man. Uh, but he could be incredibly nasty. I've never met anybody who could be as um, bullying as he was. Uh, outrageous, outrageous um, ways that he'd lose his temper, uh, humiliate people in meetings, in public, reduce people to tears, and uh, think nothing of it. <coughs> he was also uh, a very, very good businessman, um, probably because he just frightened people in, in, in some ways. Anyway, I mean, he was successful. A, a lot of things that he did. Uh, and uh, I hadn't been working for Steve that long. I'd never really crossed swords with him. Uh, we'd had a reasonably um, okay relationship thus far. But I knew that he, would gonna, he was going to blow a gasket when I told him that I was going to leave. Uh, he, he would go ballistic, as far as I, I could tell. Uh, and I decided that um, the decent thing to do was to go in and tell him myself rather than wait till he heard. Uh, maybe that was a safer thing to do, but I really didn't want to do it. Uh, and so I booked an appointment. I went into his office, um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, um, it was then that I noticed that on, on a shelf, on a bookshelf in his office, uh, I'd been in his office, you know, lots of times or several times, but never noticed this, there was a, a, a Rupa, a figure of Remoga City, um, just sitting on this bookshelf. Uh, and uh, Steve, had, Steve, I knew he'd travelled, you know, in, 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 Far East, uh, in, in the Far East, in, in East Asia. Uh, and, and obviously he'd, he'd got this Rupa uh, from somewhere, I don't know. And uh, instantly I felt it was all right, actually. I did feel fearless just for a little while. Uh, and I told him what I was, that I was resigning. His face changed colour as I told him. He went, Scarlet, um, literally, as I said, uh, Steve, I've come to say that I'm, I'm going to be leaving. Because uh, he thought I was going to come and you know, update him on the project that we were working on. And uh, his first question was, where are you going? Uh, and of course I realised that his concern was that I was going to go to another competitor retailer uh, and... and, and you know, sell all our secrets, as it were. Sell the secrets of how we did things. Not that I knew very many. Um, 
but, but that was his fear. And uh, I, I just said, look, I, I, um, I've been a Buddhist for a few years now, and uh, I want to uh, make that more of a full-time commitment. I'm going to go fundraising, do fundraising for the London Buddhist Centre. And uh, he, he just melted. This man just melted and became the most delightful, charming presence, uh, <laughs> offering me um, what he said. He said he'd built up this, this uh, direct selling business. And he said to me, uh, he said, all this that we've been working for is nothing. It's meaningless. And what you're doing has more meaning than anything I've ever done. And I wish you well. And I thought, my goodness. And he said, and he said, he said, if you ever need any help, if you need equipment, computer equipment, whatever you need, don't hesitate to come and ask, uh, and I'll see what I can do. Uh, and I just, I was, I was speechless. Uh, anyway, that was my little encounter with Emoga City in uh, Steve's office that I thought I'd bring in. Okay, I've got quite a bit to do, so I'll, I'll, I'll move on. The rope's cut, uh, and, and Joe just falls. He falls, uh, as far as he's concerned, to his death. Uh, he, he screams uh, into, into this uh, void. Um, it's actually worse than just falling, uh, because he hits snow and falls into a crevasse in the ice. He falls into this... Um, crack in the ice, uh, maybe about 25 feet wide. Uh, but the next thing he knows, he hits ice. He hits hard ground after having fallen about 100 feet. Uh, and uh, he's still conscious. He knows he's conscious because he's in agonizing pain. He's fallen on his leg. Yeah. He's in agonizing pain. It's dark. All he knows is is in this crevasse. Uh, he doesn't know what he's, you know, what what he's sort of got around him. He can't see uh, around him. It turns out he's on a little ice bridge in the crevasse. There's a little bridge, a thin, narrow little bridge that he's fallen on and landed on and is lying on, sprawled on his front actually, um, and uh, in precarious danger of falling off. And, and, and looking down, it's just blackness, yeah? unending blackness. And he spends uh, the rest of that night clinging to this bridge, uh, thinking, okay, so it, it's going to end like this, is it? Uh, I'm going to die in the dark, in the cold, in this crevasse, on my own. This is how it's ending. And he sobs. And he screams, and uh, he knows that nobody can hear him. Uh, Simon will think he's dead. He can't be seen in this crevasse, even though he's only fallen about 50 feet into the crevasse. Uh, yeah, there's nothing he can do. He has this little torch, and um, he thinks, maybe I can climb out, maybe I can climb out. Uh, and he has four attempts. Remember, he's got this leg that's twisted and in agony. Uh, he has four attempts at, at putting his ice screw into the ice and trying to heave himself, hold himself out, each time sliding back onto the ice bridge, uh, and, and finally gives up. Um, there's no way up, there's no way back. So he spends this night on this ice bridge. It, it feels like um, the spiritual equivalent of a dark night of the soul, uh, there's nothing. He's alone. It's, it's the sort of uh, existential nightmare writ large. Um, and then, well, he waits until dawn. He waits until light. He can see light uh, above him. Uh, and he decides that he can't, he can't stay there. Uh, if he's going to die, he wants to die on the move, uh, not sitting waiting to die of cold and hunger and thirst on this ice bridge. So he decides that he's going to take what rope he's got and abseil down, because he can't go up, so he's going to go down. Uh, and as far as he knows, um, the drop is perhaps thousands of feet. His rope is a few hundred feet. Uh, at the end of the rope, he's going to let go. 
Yeah, because there's nothing else he can do. So he starts to trawl or abseil down, descend into nothingness. And well, you know, it's obvious this is a uh, you know, an archetypal image, isn't it? This whole story seems to be full of archetypal images of, of, of descent. Uh, you know, they've climbed this mountain, they've achieved this um, incredible feat, uh, but actually uh, what's difficult is the descent, and he has to go deeper into the darkness because uh, he has no choice. He has no choice. He's put himself in this situation. He's walking or abseiling into the unknown, being prepared to lose everything, being prepared to die. And I was just thinking that, you know, in the spiritual life, it does seem often to be the case that things get harder before they get easier. Uh, or perhaps they just carry on getting harder. It depends on individuals. It seems to be different. But often, after we make a commitment, after we pass a point of no return, things seem to get harder. Uh, Vidanya was talking about um, the sort of archetypal forces in the universe that seem to come to help us. Uh, and that's true. But there also seem to be very often forces that come to resist, uh, forces within ourselves and forces outside that seem to resist uh, us moving towards our ideals. And, uh, well, I, I don't really have very much advice to say apart from, um, well, we have to carry on, don't we? We have to carry on. Uh, in the hope that we can, um, you know, become more integrated in ourselves, can overcome the obstacles, see those obstacles as somehow opportunities, use our friends, use whatever resources we have, and not despair. In Joe's case, he runs out of rope and looks down, and actually there's a floor, there's a floor uh, below him. Uh, the rope hasn't run out, and, and there's a floor, uh, snow-covered floor. And he can't believe his good fortune. Uh, and he, he, he sort of rests, lands on this floor, uh, until he realises it's a false floor. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this floor of snow, but actually it's, it's like a false ceiling. The crevasse is still dropping away under him. Yeah? Um, but nevertheless, he's able to rest on it. And looking up, he can see that in, in this sort of chamber that he's in, in this ice chamber, there's a way out. There's a cone-shaped uh, um, tunnel of ice. And through the end of it, he can see sunlight. Uh, and he decides that he, he, he might be able to crawl out. So So... This is what he does. He um, starts crawling towards this light, and it is crawling. Um, uh, you know, every step is, is agonizingly slow and painful. Let me just read a little bit of what he says. I was resting on my axis. This is one step. He's describing one step. I was resting on my axis, looking at my good leg buried in the snow. I tried lifting the injured leg up parallel with it and groaned as the knee crunched and refused to bend properly, leaving the boot about six inches lower than the good foot. Pain flared up as I leant down and dug a step in the snow. I tamped it down as much as possible, then dug a smaller step below it. When I had finished, I planted both axes in the slope above, gritted my teeth, and heaved my burning leg up until the boot rested in the lower step. Bracing myself on the axes, I made a convulsive hop off my good leg, pressing my arms hard down for extra thrust. A searing pain burst from my knee as my weight momentarily came onto it and then faded as the good leg found a foothold on the higher step. I shouted an obscenity which echoed comically round the chamber. Then I bent down to dig another two steps and repeat the pattern. So that's one step. It takes five hours of those steps for him to crawl up this this uh, cone, which is at 45 degrees, up into the light. And he makes it. He makes it. Yeah. Okay, so he gets down. He gets down almost to the point where the base camp was. 
um, doesn't know whether Simon will be there, whether the tents will be there. Uh, doesn't want to know, actually. He doesn't want to look just in case they're not there. He can't face uh, them not being there. Actually, he does look but can't see because it's dark when he gets there and there's another snowstorm. So he can't see. So he collapses. He collapses in exhaustion. He gives up. Until he wakes up to the, to the smell, to the acrid smell of excrement and urine. Yeah? And uh, this is, it acts as a sort of smelling salt for him. He wakes up and thinks, <laughs> why am I covered in excrement? And uh, he realizes to his sort of humiliation that he's crawled through his own excrement uh, because he's crawled through the latrine area uh, of the base camp. Uh, perhaps I'll just say very, very briefly that um, that humiliation seems to be another part of his maturing. Uh, again, archetypally, it feels very significant that this is what wakes him up. All that, all that um, egotism has to crawl through excrement uh, uh, to, to, to be saved, in a way. And uh, I remember Padma Vajra giving a talk saying that he felt that humiliation... In, in this talk, he said at one point that humiliation, experiences of humiliation were close to experiences of insight. I remember thinking, rubbish, I don't want to. And, and what it was, was that I just didn't want to acknowledge that. Um, I don't know about the truth of that, but I do know that uh, I have experienced humiliations, and uh, they have led to some sort of growth, I think. They have led to some sort of maturing. I was going to talk about one of my... Um, key humiliations. Uh, I think I've run out of time, so. <laughs> all right, I'll just. Uh, all right, I'll just. Um, it's actually not a very big humiliation. It's a sort of embarrassment. It's a very public embarrassment. Uh, I was on a on a winter retreat. The LBC holds these big winter retreats, which some of you may have been on. Um, 100, 120 people every year over Christmas. Uh, I'm doing on one soon. And I was uh, a Mitra, very keen, idealistic Mitra, supporting this retreat. The last night of the retreat, we have a big festive puja. It's New Year's Eve. We stay up till midnight. It's a confession puja, so people write down things that they want to leave behind. We burn them in this big bonfire. Um, we got to the puja. There's people sitting, standing, uh, or sitting, yeah, on both sides of the shrine with this sort of walkway, gangway in the middle. Um, and uh, I'm sitting quite close to the front. Uh, somebody points out, whoever's leading the puja, points out to me that we haven't got uh, an, a big bowl to burn, to hold the confessions in, you know, the piece of paper in. So I say, no worries, I'll go and get one. Go off, rush to the kitchen to, to get, um, you know, a, a bowl, as it were, uh, and uh, go to the loo on my way and come back. And by the time I come back, they're getting ready to salute the shrine. So everybody's standing, um, waiting, you know, facing the shrine. Uh, what happened was that um, uh, I'd been sitting in meditation. I hadn't done my trouser belt up. I hadn't done my trousers up. My, my trouser button or whatever was undone. But I hadn't noticed either. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I'm carrying this bowl, which is quite a large bowl. It took both hands to carry this bowl. <laughs> and uh, I start walking towards the shrine. So I'm coming up this gangway with this large bowl, walking, and I suddenly think, my goodness, my trousers feel like they're slipping, they're slipping, they're a bit loose. And I'm halfway there by now, and I think, well, I'm not sure I can do anything about this. Do you stop, put the bowl down, put your, what do you do? So I kind of, in a fit of panic, carried on. Uh, and uh, I got to the shrine, and uh, carrying this bowl, and they just went, zoof! <laughs> Facing this shrine with my trousers around my ankle, this huge bowl, 120 people in the room, 120 people, all burst out in uh, spontaneous applause. <laughs> it was time to perfection. Anyway, I, I, I'll, I'll stop. That was one of my embarrassing moments. It's not particularly, in some ways, humiliating, is it? It's uh, just embarrassing. And... Uh, I'm sure I've had worse humiliations. They're just not so public. Anyway, so, so Joe uh, 
wakes up covered in his own excrement uh, and shouts out uh, in agony and despair, Simon. He just shouts Simon. Uh, uh, anybody, actually, but he shouts Simon. Wanting, he says he, he didn't want to die alone. That's what, that's what was what so he was despairing. He knew he was going to die. He just didn't want to die alone. He wanted to be held. Uh, didn't even want to live. He even says that at that point, it was as if, well, living and dying didn't seem that different, actually. It didn't, didn't seem to matter whether one died or not. He, he just wanted to be held. Uh, he also says in the film that, uh, when he cries out, Simon, when he, actually utters that cry, uh, he felt that he lost something. Uh, and what he lost, he says, is he lost himself. In that moment of trying out, he, he lost himself. That's what he says. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he meant, but it seems to me very, very significant that after, you know, this three and a half day, well, it's actually a six day journey if you counted the up and down. He lost three stone in, in these days, yeah? So you can sort of imagine uh, the physical endurance that he had to put up with. He, he, he loses himself. There's a death. There's a spiritual death. Um, the true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which he has attained to liberation from the self. That's Einstein again. And of course, uh, he didn't know whether Simon would still be there. Uh, actually, there was no reason for Simon to be there. Uh, it had been at least two days since he'd, Simon would have reached base camp and they would have gone. Uh, but Simon was there. Something had kept him there, but he didn't know what. Richard had been saying to Simon, let's go. Look, there's no point. Joe's dead. Let's go. And Simon keeps saying, let's just wait a little bit longer. One more day. One more day. And, uh, and he hears, Simon hears Joe cry out. Uh, he's finally heard, uh, and of course he's found, and uh, held, and uh, a very, very moving um, uh, description of the mutual empathy, the love, the concern that they show for each other. Uh, you know, Joe's just breaking down in sobs, and Simon's sobbing in, in between expletives, um, and... Uh, but what I found even more moving is that um, one of Joe's first responses was to thank Simon uh, and to reassure him that he did the right thing in cutting the rope, that he was grateful uh, and to not feel guilty. Uh, that was one of his first responses. Uh, and it's just very, 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 very lovely. He's, he's um, exhausted to the point of, you know, he can't, he can't think. Um, And he's about to fall asleep. Uh, and he says, there seemed to me something important still to do before I slept. But I was losing the struggle to keep my eyes open. Then I remembered. Simon, I said, what? You saved my life, you know. It must have been terrible for you that night. And I don't blame you. I don't blame you. You had no choice. I understand that. I understand why you thought I was dead. I understand what you did. You did all that you could have done. Thanks for getting me down. Which is, you know, just tremendous. And then uh, sleep overtakes him. Although he looks at Simon and, uh, well, there are tears in Simon's eyes uh, as Simon describes what it was like for him. And, uh, uh, well, Joe says, it's over now. It's over uh, and Simon says, yes, he said it in a choked whisper, and I felt the unstoppable flood of hot tears filling my eyes. How much he had been through, I could only guess at. A second later, I was asleep. <clears throat> I find it very moving that his concern is for Simon. How much he had been through, I could only guess at. That's, that's Joe talking of Simon. Uh, and he also talks about... Um, well, that's, in a way, the end of, of, of their adventure. I mean, more happens. But, but what I find significant is uh, he talks about writing this book, in this book, and he, he, he says that he wrote it because Simon came in for a lot of criticism uh, from the mountaineering community, from mutual friends, for abandoning Joe, for cutting the rope, and then abandoning him. Uh, and uh, Joe wrote this book to... Um, 
to tell the story and to, to stop the criticism, to, to show to people that actually Simon did what, was, uh, what any uh, sensible mountaineer should have done in that, in that um, situation. Uh, it's dedicated to Simon Yates. It's to Simon Yates for a debt I can never repay. Uh, and he, what Joe says is that um, it was writing the book that changed his life. Actually, after all this adventure, his life didn't seem to significantly change, but he wrote this book, and it's changed his life. And he says that he feels incredibly fortunate for what happened. Uh, uh, he's, he's now a successful writer, an author, uh, a public speaker. Uh, he could never have imagined He's on a winning streak, and he actually says perhaps it was a small price to pay. What he had to endure was a small price to pay uh, for such, well, he says, an inspiring adventure. Almost losing everything in Peru was a sensation quite as life-enhancing as winning. So, so that's, that's something incredible. And I think that the reflection I had was that actually when he started to think about Simon, when he started to, well, thank him, uh, and, and, and then to write the book and to, to reflect on this whole episode, uh, that's when I think that uh, the maturing process was complete. He seems to me to be, uh, have, have some, completed something uh, in that maturing. It had to involve other people. It had to involve an altruistic, outward-going dimension for other people. And I think that that's what heroism in Buddhism is about. It has to involve, well, the Bodhisattva ideal, uh, it's, it's, um, well, if you don't know about the Bodhisattva ideal, you'll have to ask. But that's what is the heroic ideal in, in Buddhism. And Sangharachita, Bhante's life, is a sort of living, uh, example of the Bodhisattva ideal in action. His life and his work are the reason why we're here today. Uh, it's touched, his work has touched the lives of thousands of people. It's affected us all, uh, to some degree or another. And I thought I'd end with, um, well, Einstein again, um, talking about the Bodhisattva ideal, although he doesn't use those terms. A human being is part of the whole, called by us, universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in all its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and the foundation for inner security. <laughs>